preface and introduction of the greater life and work of christ this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by devora allen the greater life and work of christ by alexander patterson preface it will be seen at a glance that this is not a life of Christ in the usual sense. It is not a review of the events of the earthly existence of our Lord. There is a greater life and a larger work of Christ of which his life on earth is but a single chapter. While no apology is needed for any publication of the great theme of the gospel, it may be stated that there is a special reason for such a book as this. The author has examined many works on Christ and lists of hundreds more, and has conferred with competent literary authorities and has learned of few works if any covering this greater life and work of christ such a study of christ should be available the author presents this hoping it may in some measure supply the need and lead to further presentation of this great theme by more competent students there are still greater and more vital reasons for such a review of christ the eternal christ is the theme of scripture and not the Christ of the Gospels simply. Until this is seen, the Bible will be an enigma. The study of the Bible should therefore begin with him who is its Alpha as well as its Omega. This book is a study of Scripture from this standpoint. It covers the whole Bible narrative, not in an attempt to mention all details, but only the great personages, events, and crises in which the person and work of Christ are seen. It follows from Christ's place in Scripture that he is also the center of all Christian doctrine. Every truth radiates from him. A discussion of the work of the eternal Christ necessarily involves a consideration of all collateral truths. This book, therefore, contains an outline of the Christian doctrines studied from the historical baseline of the eternal life of Christ, and running concurrent with his work, from the development of which they spring. A right conception of Christ is necessary to a right view of every doctrine of the Christian faith. Wrong or defective views of Christ will affect every other truth. Heresy begins with, or is based upon, such wrong ideas of Christ. Not only all Christian belief, but all the philosophy of life is involved in the question, What think ye of Christ? Every problem and question arising among men may and should be studied from the Christological standpoint. A more vital, because a more personal reason, calls for a study of the eternal Christ. The believer's personal welfare and growth are in proportion to his knowledge of Christ. The spiritual nature may be stunted by being kept in a narrow range of truth as surely as poisoned by error. The soul must be fed by continually advancing study, the common evangelical presentation of the rudiments of the gospel is not intended as the only or sufficient subject of the Christian's consideration. We are therefore exhorted, let us cease to speak of the first principles of Christ and press on unto perfection. The gospel is robbed of its power and attractiveness by being narrowed down to a few themes and aspects. The great stimulant, corrective, and sustenance of the spiritual nature is the knowledge of Christ. To this the apostles continually urge, intending as we more fully apprehend Christ, we shall personally appropriate him, and so attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
it will be found that this intellectual apprehension of Christ will minister to the emotional reception and manifestation of him. The final goal of the Christian's faith, hope, and love is God the Father. To bring us to the Father was Christ's work. He does this by the revelation of God in himself. But it is himself in all the many phases of his character, of which the gospel narrative is but one. Christ there was God manifest in the flesh, but in the flesh only, and only so far as flesh can manifest God. But there are revelations of Christ, and hence of God, which flesh cannot make by reason of its limitations. These are seen only in the eternal Christ. The great defect in the study of Christ is to consider him in but a single chapter of his life and work. It has been a great mistake to rest the proof and teaching of the nature and work of Christ upon this one revelation of himself, precious as it is. A defective conception of Christ is almost as dangerous as a false one. Indeed, all the heresies, fanaticisms, and dwarfed experiences may be traced to partial rather than false views of Christ. The great cure for all the errors of doctrine and defects of experience will be found to be the full presentation, knowledge, and reception of the eternal Christ in all the many phases of his work and nature. While this does not profess to be a critical work, it has been prepared with care. Every passage of scripture quoted has been closely examined with the aid of approved critical authorities, and no view adopted without good outside warrant. Over seventy authors and works have been quoted, and many more consulted. The author rests, however, upon scripture alone for all final conclusions, feeling that this is the court of last resort in all revealed truth. The revised version has been exclusively used and quoted. This is a comparatively small book for so great and extended a theme. It is purposely made so. The author's desire is to show, if possible, in a comparatively brief view, the entire course of the great life, as far as it has been revealed, and as the author has apprehended it. Introduction the purpose of Scripture is the glory of God in the welfare of all created things by the revelation of Himself and His will to them concerning them. The means of this revelation is Christ. He is not only the conveyor of the revelation, but the revelation itself. Christ is, then, the theme of Scripture. The history of Christ in Scripture is a development. His picture is seen to grow from point to outline, from outline to feature, from feature to a living, moving, speaking form. We can see in the opening chapters of Genesis by the plural forms of names and pronouns applied to God that there are more than one present. As the narrative advances, a second person becomes clearly discernible. He assumes a name and is seen and heard. After a time he appears in human form and is handled and felt, and in this form lives among men. He afterward reveals himself to individuals in a still more intimate way, so that each can say, I know him. So also we see him revealed to enlarging circles of observers. He is at first seen with God alone, then he is observed by the heavenly intelligences, and finally by all creatures in heaven and earth. To mankind he is also so revealed, first to a few occasional individuals, then to a single nation, 
later to many of all nations, and at last every eye sees him, and in eternity he is known to a great multitude whom no man can number. Christ is also presented in Scripture from various standpoints. He may be studied as seen by God the Father, by saints, by enemies, and even by devils. He is seen to be connected with every created thing, animate and inanimate. We must observe him in many different activities and conditions. We are permitted to gaze upon him in the solitude and glory of eternal existence with God. We are told to watch him in the work of creation, and to follow him in his dealings with unfallen man in Eden, and as he afterward follows the wayward race in the long, sad journey through a world of sin and sorrow. We are even allowed to enter heaven and witness his reception as he returns victor over the enemies of God and man. And when he comes to restore all things, we may accompany him and witness the great restoration, and even watch his course as he disappears from our vision down the long vista of the eternal future. And longing to know him in some closer and more familiar relationship, we may turn our eyes inward and in ourselves each see Christ in himself. The successive periods in which Christ is revealed to us in Scripture are seven. The eternal past, creation, the Old Testament age, his earthly life, his present state, in the day of the Lord, and in the eternal future. These form a continuous narrative running through Scripture. Each of them is a distinct epoch, and each succeeding era grows out of the preceding, the whole forming one great plan directed by uniform principles, and tending to a prearranged and glorious goal. Christ is seen in these successive manifestations in extending displays of grace, each of them an addition to the preceding, and covering greater areas of blessing. The whole history displays a continually advancing and enlarging work of grace, until the spreading circles are lost in the eternal future. The keynote of these chapters is, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We will endeavor to show that he who commanded the destruction of the Canaanites was the same who said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That he who said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, afterwards said, Depart, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. We will see that the same hand planted the Garden of Eden, opened the fountains of the great deep, blessed the little children, and draws the sword of Armageddon. We shall endeavor to discover the principles upon which Christ works, and above all, the will of God for our lives, that we may so come into relations to himself as to one day be able to see and know him as we are known. End of Introduction